We'll get back to Neo and the Matrix in just a minute. Uh, the hardest part about being battle ready uh, from friends of mine who uh, are some of you who do this for a living is knowing what the next battle is going to be is probably the hardest part about battle readiness. I mean, on the one hand, certainly we can all go train, but oftentimes we feel like we're training for a battle we don't know what it's going to be. And that's because the nature of warfare always changes. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, famously remarked that the generals are always preparing us for, to fight the last battle, not the next one. Uh, and that was taken from an article after World War I uh, in one of the different journals that came out. I think it was called The Military Engineer. Uh, a guy had written about how the, the fact that everybody who's successful in a war ultimately those who becomes the next generals. And so our generals are the ones who then determine the policy for how the military is going to structure and fight the next war. And so they're usually looking to fight the next war based on what they learned from the last war, assuming that the next war is going to be just like the last one. And the problem is things are changing. And nowadays they're changing much more rapidly. It used to take uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years for the battlefield to change. So for, for many you know, millennia, uh, the battlefield was all about the strength of your walls or your fortification. And so if you look through biblical times, pretty much the entire Bible, it's all about your walls. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. When the people are coming out of Egypt, they're going into the promised land, what do they fear when they go into the land? The walls of Jericho, they're so thick, they're so big, how could we ever defeat these people with the kind of walls that they have? If you look at Jerusalem, there's been walls built after walls built on top of walls built. And even if you go to the city today, you'll see there's still a wall there that dates back to the medieval times when uh, the Crusaders came and built a wall around Jerusalem. That wall is still up. But we don't build walls anymore. Why? Well, eventually gunpowder came along and cannons came along. And if you built a wall and decided you were going to stay inside the wall and think that was going to protect you, you were just a sitting target. That's all you were. And so eventually those cannons will take out your wall and they'll come right through. And so warfare changed and walls were no longer a thing. They become a thing of the past. And so armies then moved towards pursuing cannons and gunfire. And that went along in various fashions until you hit World War I, where uh, charging out with your artillery didn't make a whole lot of sense because there was an evolution that had happened, and that is people combined the idea of a wall with the idea of a gun, and that's where you had these machine gun nests that were then put in, and that's why World War I was all about trench warfare. The two sides eventually realized if we just do a mass onslaught, we're all going to get onslaughted, if that's a word, <laughs> and so they went towards trench. Some of you all who are military historians are like, you're making a mess of this, but you're kind of on course. So in World War II, if you try to prepare for World War II the way you fought World War I, you were going to be outdated. Why? Because tanks and airplanes came in. And when you can fly an airplane right over a trench, it doesn't make much sense to hide out in a trench. And when you can take a armored tank straight into that machine gun nest, it doesn't make much sense to stay in that machine gun nest anymore. And so warfare changed. And so then it was all about tanks and planes. Well, then we moved into the next uh, uh, age of warfare, which we're somewhat still in the middle of, an asymmetric warfare, where we went into the jungles of Vietnam with our tanks and our planes, and they were highly ineffective in jungles and in the tunnels of Vietnam. And in different forms, that's continued. However, now we're beginning to see, if you try to prepare for the next battle the way the last battle was, because we, we moved towards a lot of special operations type stuff, and that was the focus where you know these strategic units. But what's the battlefield looking like now? We're using words like cyber, biological. Those, those, that doesn't work very well for cyber, biological. Uh, I don't know if we're in a biological war right now or not. The whole world's trying to figure that one out. Maybe we are, maybe we're not. Depends on what conspiracy theory you believe or not believe. At the very least, we know it's a real threat now, don't we? 
And so now we're preparing for that as well. Uh, there's also economic war that goes on. Right now there's a war over energy that's going on right now. Like, is America involved in a war? When you go to fill up your gas, you realize you are, right? Because there's an economic war that's going on. In other words, the landscape is changing so fast nowadays. It used to take hundreds if not thousands of years to, for the landscape to change. So it was much easier to prepare for battle back then. Now, you're pulling your hair out if you're trying to prepare for the next battle because you don't have a clue where it's going to come from, which makes preparing for battle and being battle ready nearly impossible in today's landscape. In your own life, though, it shouldn't be. It only is if you don't understand what the battle truly is. God's made it pretty simple for you to figure out what your battle really is and where this battle actually is coming from. It looks a lot of different ways, but at the core, it's all the same. And it comes back to this one truth we find over in uh, the end of the book of Ephesians. Paul's written a bunch of stuff, and he's explaining a lot of things about life and about relationships and about love and about God. And he sums it all up, and he says, all right, let's focus in. Here's the one thing you got to look You have to look at it from this perspective. You don't have this perspective on it. Everything else I've said, you're going to misapply it and not use it right. You need to understand the world from this perspective. And so he gives them a worldview to understand the battlefield as it truly is. And so he ends off his... his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, so finally, this finally means, all right, so here's the thing. Take all of this, put this together, because this is what I want you to understand. I want you to understand with this concept or this, this framework. Here's what the battlefield is. He says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when that day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. After you've done everything to stand, stand firm, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted for the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition, take up all this, the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet and the sword of the Spirit, uh, which is the word of God. In other words, what he's saying is, the battlefield is different than what you think of it. And so if you're going to be ready for this battlefield, your weapons of, of warfare are going to be very different than what you think they're going to be. And the same way that our weapons of warfare have had to change almost every five to ten years. I don't know what the window now is for how the landscape changes, but technology and everything else is pushing it to about be in about a five to ten year window before everything radically changes. And every time there's a new conflict, what is needed for that conflict radically changes. If you go into a conflict with the wrong weapons, you're going to have a problem. And we're seeing that every single time two nations go to war. In your own life, if you go with the wrong weapons, you're going to have a problem. Now, I know a lot of time people time, you know, break down each one of these. I might do that at some point over the course of this, of this series, little things about what all these different things are. The point of it is when Paul's saying, when you need to be equipped for battle, but you have to know what the battle is, and if you don't know what the battle is, you're going to have the wrong equipment. So he talks about all these things about the truth and salvation and everything. All of that saying, if you know what the battle is, you'll be equipped for the battle. So I want to talk about what battle he's talking about to begin with, and that's where I want to get back to uh, the Matrix. Uh, I use a lot of clips from Hollywood to begin to talk about Scripture, and the reason why is uh, even though Hollywood may have a different theological bent, may have, why do I even say that, uh, even though Hollywood clearly is a different theological bent than what we find in Scripture, they still have to ground everything they do in a sense of reality or truth. Now, you might say, but I thought the whole point of a, of a movie is to sort of suspend reality for a moment and take us away from the difficult truths of life and kind of let us just sort of enjoy a fantasy world. Let, let us go off to a galaxy far, far away. Let us go off to the mythical, uh, wonderful, wizardry world of, of Harry Potter, whatever they call that. Uh, let us go off into a different time, a place. Let us, I want to step into the Marvel universe and get out of the one I'm in. 
while that may be true, we want to have that sense of escape, in order for you to buy into it, or in order for you to connect with it at sort of a emotional level or a gut level, they have to at least ground it in a reality or a truth that we all instinctively know to be true. Does that make sense? There, no matter how fictional or fantastical, what's the word? Well, I'm looking at Fantastical? Yes. No matter how fiction or fantastical the movie sets out to be, there's always an element of truth that it is grounded in, whether it be in the uh, battle of good versus evil, uh, right versus wrong, love versus hate. These are all truths that they're, that they're based in. And if you'll notice, each of these truths that all of your fictional stories are based on or founded on, where do those things all find their roots, their origins, their foundation from? Scripture. Over and over and over again, you'll find good versus evil, love versus hate. All of these things come, are the foundational premises that you find in Scripture, especially when you come to the idea of a spiritual world. Now, we live in a very secular society, a very secular world, and there's nothing more secular than Hollywood. Except for when they make movies, they understand and know there is a spiritual reality, even though they try to deny it. But in order for you to buy into the fiction that they're going to sell, they bring out this concept that you instinctively know to be true. So in the Star Wars, we know there's a spiritual reality behind things, so what do they call it? The Force, right? And, and in the one episode that's really good, the original one, uh, <laughs> right? Luke can either trust in the you know, known, the seen, the, the technology, or what can he do? He can tap into the spiritual realm, which is the Force, and Obi-Wan's there in his ear whispering, use the Force, right? In other movies, let's go to the, to the Harry Potter world, uh, all of the spiritual realities are a little bit more prevalent, but there it's wizards and witches. There's a good, there's a good uh, uh, use of magic and there's a bad use of magic and spells, but there's still this sort of underlying reality they're tapping into that there's a world beyond the known and there's this bus stop at, what is it, nine and some three quarters train station that the rest of the world passes right on by and doesn't know anything about but can take you into the world that is truly there that you just can't see with your own eyes all the time because you're a mug muggle Dennis would know best I guess I don't know muglin Dennis muglin never mind moving on um he's a guy in our church uh we, we see other pictures of this the marvel universe right there are some characters who either are God or God-like, whether it be Thor, the God of Thunder, uh, or whether it be Thanos, who is controlling all of humanity to do things in his own way, and you've got these stones that have these magical, mystical powers about them. They're tapping into the sense that we all have that there is a world beyond our world, that there's a spiritual reality behind everything that we see. Even in a secular society, we cannot deny there is something behind it all. And of course, in The Matrix... It's not a magic power, it's not a force. What is it? Computers, <laughs> right? There's a computer digital reality behind it, and so what Neo, who's Keanu Reeves, uh, is you know, stepping into is realizing everything you see is an illusion. Everything you see is nothing more than sort of a, a digital landscape that's been projected onto your mind. And he's able to, at, at some, when he finally gets to the point where he can see reality for what it is, he can see the computer code behind the reality. And that's where that, now I spliced together a couple of different scenes. If you've seen the movie, I'm splicing some things together there. Uh, just to point out that, that this idea that there is a reality behind the reality that you see. 
And when he begins to see it, the bullets that are coming at him, he realizes they're not actual bullets. It's just a digital projection of a bullet in a fight scene. He's, he just, because you can do the computer code, you, you can get behind it in the same way a hacker could get into a system and not have to go through all of the firewalls. They get around all of that. That's what he's basically doing with reality. What is all this pointing to? What is all this connecting with? The fact that something in your soul and in your being knows there's a spiritual reality of everything around you. And Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Just like Neo's struggle wasn't against these bullets that were coming at him or the person who's coming to fight him. It wasn't a physical battle. It was a digital battle. That's what it really was. He was somewhere, he's in there hacking out code to do everything that you see. And what Paul's saying, in the same way, in the same reality, all this is an echo of what's really going on, and that is the struggles that you have are not all flesh and blood. There's a spiritual reality to them. Which means, if you're only trying to fight the battles in your life, thinking that it's all flesh and blood, you're bringing the wrong, wrong weapons to war. You're, you're bringing a sword to a gunfight. You're building a wall in the age of tanks. You're digging a trench in the age of airplanes. Uh, you're, you're bringing these airplanes then in an age of jungle warfare and it doesn't do you any good. He says the weapons you have to have are very different because you need to understand the battle has changed, the landscape has changed from what you've always thought it was. This is not a battle of flesh and blood, it is a spiritual battle that is going on behind everything. And he says, I want you to be able to see the spiritual reality behind the things that you see. And so he goes into this and he explains, um, uh, he says, for the, the battle that you fight, uh, where are we, in our scriptures here? Uh, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, uh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. Um, we think all of our battles are flesh and blood. We think in these terms. Uh, so that's why when we see that there's an issue of poverty in a third world country, uh, we think, well, uh, this is a battle of flesh and blood. In other words, there is some sort of uh, geopolitical solution to this geopolitical problem because we're not thinking in spiritual terms. We're thinking in flesh and blood terms. And so what do we do? We say, well, there's a money problem. So what are we going to do? We'll send money. And how much aid money does it take to, to cure poverty? We don't know yet. We have never been able to do it with money, have we? I, I mean, if you could so solve poverty by just spending money or sending money somewhere, it would be solved 100 times over, would it not? You go, oh, oh, why is it not being solved? Oh, it's because the political system is corrupt. That's what it is. The money goes in, and the warlords take it, and the people don't get anything. Okay, no problem. If it's a political issue, then what do we do? We'll just go in and overthrow the government. And that's worked every time. <laughs> you laugh because it's never worked, because it's not a battle against flesh and blood. Oh, I know what it is. It's an education issue. We can get around the financial issue and the government issue. If the people were more educated and they had better practices, education is the key to everything. And so we'll provide training and opportunity. And somehow that still fails. Because as long as we're thinking that the solution is always a flesh and blood issue and not a spiritual issue, there's a spiritual problem behind all of this. We do it with our own selves. Um, uh, you can go to a hundred different realms. I'll just go to uh, in the area of anger or depression or anxiety. So oftentimes we only look at, is it a uh, psychological issue or is it a physiological issue? In other words, is this a chemical imbalance where we need to medicate to make a change or is this a therapeutic issue where we need to change the way that we're thinking? I'm not saying that either one of those two approaches is wrong. What I'm saying is they're incomplete. Sometimes there's also a spiritual dynamic to these things. And if you're only going to treat it with medicine or with therapy, but deny the fact that there's a spiritual reality, you may be missing something. I know some people who've struggled with each of these three, 
and it was a physiological issue and medication, boom, instantly. They got the right medication, different person. Some of you have those testimonies. For some people, it was a therapy issue. It was simply a way, a, a faulty way of thinking that needed to be corrected, worked through, took some time, took some process, but once they began to see reality as it was and be able to be able to frame things as they were and be able to put things in the right place and sort some things out, bam, new person. But sometimes it's a spiritual issue. And I can tell you as a pastor, I've seen people try to treat their issue with these other two, but overlook the spiritual side of things, and until they address the spiritual issue that was at hand, nothing ever got any better. So sometimes it truly is a spiritual issue. I've actually seen multiple people who confess sin, get things right with God, quit running from God and from their problems, uh, and make wise choices and, and, and start getting their, line, or their life in line with God. And literally overnight, I've seen it actually overnight, I've gone to visit somebody, and then the very next day, seen them after, and I said, what happened? Are you on something different? And they said, no, I just called up some people and I made some confessions, and I've never been freer than I am right now. And it was just the weight of all of the guilt and the weight of all of the lies they've been holding up and the weight of trying to keep this whole tangled mess of all these weaves, of everything they weave together, that's what was weighing them down this whole time. So what I'm saying is, you can't just say it's one or the other. You have to be able to look at all three. And if you don't consider all three, you might be missing something because our battle isn't just against flesh and blood. It's also against, or our primary battle is where he's getting at, is a spiritual battle in life. And if you deny that, you're going to bring the wrong weapons uh, to bear. So he says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Uh, this word here, the, the power, against the powers of this dark world, um, the Greek word here is kosmokrator, and it's, it's a picture of cosmos, we know that to be the world, um, and, but in krato is to hold. Uh, it, it is the evil power that has a hold of our world, is the picture of it. Now, I'm going to put aside what the Bible says. Uh, I'm just going to go to uh, what we understand. Um, is it fair to say that the political and economic and social structures of our world are corrupt? Is that a fair statement? I mean, would we all agree that uh, even if somebody is not a corrupt person, uh, the second they enter politics, corruption happens, right? Typically, to get elected, you have to do something corrupt. Not everybody, but if it doesn't happen why you're getting elected or who it is that a party puts out seems to be a corrupt method that the best candidate can't even get a nomination from a group or a party, uh, or at the very least, once they take office, they move and become corrupted at some point because everything's backed by what? Special interests, right? Everybody's out looking out for their own good, and so we're looking for ways to cure all of these things, and so we would say all of politics is corrupt. Uh, economics, that's corrupt, right? Uh, who gets money, who has money, who loans money, insider training, everything about economics is corrupt through and through. Big corporations are controlling everything all the way down. Everything economically is corrupt, not just in our country, but throughout the world. Social, I mean, we know social medias are corrupt and everybody has an agenda. We've already given a whole message about how they're psychologically uh, conditioning you to do exactly what they want you to do, to think the way they want you to think and to move you to be able to spend more time on each of their platforms. Uh, we also know that all of our social structures uh, are pushed towards getting you to idolize those people who are performers. You lift up and I, I had this sort of odd thought. When you go to a concert, why do you want to go backstage? Like why? Just pause and think about it for a second. It's because you've been pushed to idolize a performer. Like, is the music better once you've gotten a selfie? <laughs> Does Dave Matthews have some key to life that's going to open up all your insights? 
not to pick it on him. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. I mean, is, is Luke Bryan going to uh, you know, change your whole world because you got to shake his hand? Why, why do you want to go backstage? I, I thought you just liked the music. I don't know. It just it seems kind of, but what is it? Our social structures push us to idolize performers, whether it be movie stars, actors, uh, musicians. I mean, was there any better show named than American Idol? We just called it for what it was. We are going to try to create the next person that our country will idolize. And they just put it right in your face and said, here's exactly what we're going to do. For years, it was like that, which just seemed like a biblical word that nobody was going to touch. It was like, ah, nobody's spiritual anymore. We'll shove it right on them. They won't even realize or care. Social structures. Uh, think how sexualized everything is in culture. I mean, is there not you know, some corrupt influence out there that's pushing your daughters to dress the way that they do uh, and, and, and to push young men to be attracted to that and to want that or pursue that or push women to do things. Uh, everything from fashion to relationships is corrupted in this. The funny thing about that word corrupted is, no matter where you go in our country, if you ask, are the economic, political, and social structures of our country and of our world corrupt, everybody would say yes. Do you know what the Bible would call it? It's funny, we're in church going, I don't know. Oh, what would it call? That's what you're, you're supposed to tell me. That's why I'm here. Others of you are like, I know better than to answer because you always make fun of anybody who answers. <laughs> but this is a gimme. The Bible calls it close, evil. It's evil. Evil is thoroughly has a hold of all of these structures and institutions. Is not corruption really a sort of a general way of talking about evil? What happens when you take something that is good and is corrupt? It becomes evil. Is not evil the very definition of evil, the corruption of that which is good, holy, pure? So we feel comfortable calling them corrupt because we don't live in a mindset that thinks of things in terms of good and evil, godly and satanic. So instead we use words that are an echo of the reality that we see, we just don't know how to place it or how to define it, so we call it corrupt. And it is. And he's calling it it is. But it's not just corrupt, it's, it's evil. It has a hold of all of these systems. And because of that, it has a hold of our mind and how we see reality. The battle at the end of the day is a spiritual battle for your soul. And, and it hits in three uh, primary areas. Uh, number one is, do you understand what this life is all about or not? That's one of the biggest battles out there. Do you know... I, I hope, I'm trying, I hope you understand I'm trying to prepare you for the real battle in life, which is why I tell you every single, way, every single week what this life is all about. This life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with the one who created you, the one who made you, the one who formed you, the one who has called you by name, the one who has given his very life for you, the one who wants to have an eternal relationship with you. This life is about nothing more than having a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that you can enjoy for all eternity. And everything in there is about the battle that you're truly facing. This life's about nothing more than a relationship with God. All of the evil structures of this world are trying to tell you it's about everything else but that. Uh, it's about the here and the now. It's about what you can get. It's about what you can achieve. It's about what you can accomplish. Anything else other than a relationship with God are what every single one of these powers is pushing you towards. You know, about getting more power, getting more influence, getting more money. All of these things are all pushing you towards the believing that life is about something or anything else other than that. That's why the very, when Satan first enters in, all of this stuff you know, comes from Satan to begin with, when Satan first enters into the world, he goes to Eve or Adam and Eve, and what's, what's, his, what's his ploy? God doesn't love you. 
He's holding out on you, man. I mean, yeah, he's given you all this, but you ever just pause to ask yourself, what's with that tree over there? Why didn't he really want you to have it? He's got to be holding out on you, right? I bet there's a world out there that's so amazing and wonderful. He just doesn't want you to have it. What's it called anyway? Oh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, that's what it is, see? He knows in the day you eat it, you'll become like him. He's jealous, man. He's jealous. He don't want you to become like him. He's trying to keep you down. He knows that if you can become like him, then you can choose what's right and wrong. You could do what you wanted to do. You could be a, a boss unto yourself. You could be a ruler under yourself. But no, 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 he doesn't want that. He wants you, he wants to keep you down. Isn't that what the man always wants to do? A oh, man always wants to keep you down, just like God. He's the man, you see. He wants to keep you down. And so what do they do? They doubt whether or not God's motive is loving or not, and they go their own way. That's the thing that plays out every single day in our lives. Do you truly trust that what God has you do is what God would have you do because he loves you or because he's holding out on you? Let's put this in terms of maybe ones you can better understand. It's not one of the main struggles of parenting, communicating that exact same truth. You tell your kids to not do something because you love them, and what do they think? <laughs> you don't know how to have fun. That's what the problem is. <laughs> you lost sight of what a good time is. And if I did everything you wanted me to do, I would never have any fun. I would never explore anything in this world. There's a lot of fun stuff out there, but you don't know what it is because you're too old. <laughs> right? And so the last thing that they want to do is listen to what mom and dad have to say because you don't know nothing. Is that not an exact reflection of our relationship with God? I think it is. And so it leads to your kids wanting to rebel against your authority in the same way that we want to rebel against God's authority. That's what the battle is. Do you love God? The second part of that battle is, who do you serve? Do you look to God as your authority, or are you going to look to something else or someone else or yourself? Are you going to serve God, or are you going to serve yourself? Which is it going to be? That's where the second part of this spiritual battle is. The first battle is, do you love God, or are you going to love something else? Are you going to serve yourself, or are you going to serve God? Which is it going to be? And everything and every structure in this world pushes you towards what? Serving yourself. Look out for number one. It's all about you. You know, you deserve a break today. Everything in our advertising slogans all tap into, it's all about you, right? What's the one frustrating thing with kids nowadays? They think this life's all about them, right? And God's like, it's funny you should say that about your kids. Um, and then lastly, there's a battle about your perspective. This life's about nothing more than a loving relationship with God that you'll enjoy for all eternity. You are an eternal being. You are an eternal being. Satan's war against your soul is to get you to think that there is no eternity. Live for the here and now. He who dies with the most toys wins. Don't think about the fact that you're, that you're dead and you can't enjoy him then. Just focus on everything you can have here and now. All that matters is here and now. Most of your worries, most of your problems, most of your struggles are all temporal things, are they not? The real battle is to keep an eternal mindset. Do I have to go get the rope? The rope over there, ask somebody around you what it means. I pull it out every so often. It's right there behind that speaker. It represents all eternity in your life, just a little piece of it. The struggle is we, are, we always focus down, we say things like, well, life's too short to put up with this any longer. The eternal perspective comes back and says, life is really short. 
And if God's called you to endure that for just such a short season in light of all eternity, is he really asking you too much? Yeah, but if God really loved me, you know, he wouldn't have taken away, could be a person, could be your health, could be your job, whatever it is, right? Is that not a temporal mindset? You know, are you, so, so you're frustrated and you're going to walk away from an eternal relationship with God because for the next 40 years you're going to go without something. Really? That doesn't seem like a very good trade-off. To me that seems like a sucker's bet, doesn't it? Or a sucker's choice. It's like somebody saying, hey, how about this? You could ride first class for the next week anywhere you want to go, all out. After this week, though, you're going to be penniless, broke, and have nothing for the rest of your life. How about it? Right? Is that not what Satan has convinced all of the world to do? Go for first class and mortgage your eternity. And God's like, no, live for eternity. If you only knew everything that was at stake and you had an eternal perspective, it would change what you did with your stuff here and now. When you die, how much do you leave behind? Everything. Everything. One of the most profound things I've ever had to do in life is clean out somebody's possessions after they passed. My wife's. And go through the house and look at all of the things, the Christmas presents I bought her, the purse that she so desperately wanted and had to have, the shoes, oh my gosh, the shoes. <laughs> Lots of shoes. Right? And you clean out all this stuff and in so much of it you have memories of of what you know, it meant to that person and how much they wanted it. And you ask yourself, do they care about it at all now? It's a very sobering, sobering process to really begin to see life as it is. And from time to time, what happens is we live in this... The, 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 the issue of the matrix is this question throughout it all. You know, that, that little line he says in there, if you caught it, he says, I didn't tell you it would be easy... Uh, or, or enjoyable, I'm telling you it's the truth. The question really is, do you want to live in the truth, or do you want to continue living in the fantasy world? And the fantasy world is that this life is all there is. He who dies with the most toys wins. Look out for number one. The reality is, at the end of the day, it's all about your loving relationship with God, and that's all that's going to matter. There's echoes of this even in Hollywood. What we do in life echoes for eternity. Maximus says, if you know that quote from Gladiator, right? There's a spiritual reality behind everything that happens. The battle for your soul is who will you love, who will you serve, and do you realize that everything in your life is truly eternal? Do you know what's eternal and do you know what's temporal? The battle for your soul, who you're going to love, who you're going to serve, and do you realize that you're an eternal being? Satan is doing everything he can in every structure of your society and every structure of your life to lie to you and convince you otherwise. That God doesn't really love you. This life is about anything else other than your loving relationship with God. Serve yourself, not God. Serve anything else other than God and you better live for this life because it's all that there is. If you're not prepared to fight that battle for your soul, for your worship, and for your existence, you will lose. You will lose. I'm going to finish off with a quote from uh, a book, The Art of War. Uh, most of you all know the summary statement of this quote I'm about to read, uh, which is simply, um, uh, to know thy enemy. And I'm searching here to see if I still have it in my notes or did I move it all together. I moved some stuff around between services. And 
looks like I lost it. Oh well, doesn't matter. Um, and there he says, basically, uh, you need to know your enemy. Uh, but he says you need to know yourself and know your enemy. And if you know yourself and you know your enemy, it doesn't matter what's on the battlefield, you're prepared for it. If you know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you're in for trouble. If you know your enemy and you don't know yourself, you're also in for trouble. You need to both know yourself and know your enemy. Yourself, you were created by a loving God for an eternal existence with him. Your enemy is doing everything he can to lie to you and tell you that's not true. If you know those two things, you'll be prepared for life. If you don't know those two things, you are not battle ready at all. You're going to walk into a battlefield where the landscape has changed and you're woefully unprepared for the battle you're about to face. Because you're fighting thinking it's all about flesh and blood and not even realizing there's a spiritual battle going behind it all. We join us as we close our time in prayer. Father, I thank you for your insight. I thank you, Lord, that you tell us up front the battle we're going to face, that we don't have to go into an uncertain landscape, an uncertain battlefield. But Father, you tell us flat out it is a struggle not against flesh and blood ultimately. Our addictions and our lusts and our greed and everything that we struggle with, Father, is ultimately a spiritual battle that we're facing. Will we place you first in our life? Will we serve and worship only you? Or are we going to serve ourselves? Is this life about our loving relationship with you or about my happiness and everything I can get out of it and what I can achieve, what I can accomplish, what people think of me, how much I can acquire? Is this life all there is or am I really an eternal being? Father, may we know what the battle truly is and be prepared to fight it. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.